1: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy that knows if it's not broke, well then don't break it. He is the captain.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks
1: for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Tonight, tonight, we are drinking Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale by the Boulevard Brewing Company. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. This is a traditional Belgian-style farmhouse ale. It's a beautiful golden straw-colored beer. It's hoppy, it's fruity, and it's smooth. And you know it's great because we gave it more than four bottle caps. And tonight's brew was brought to us by this badass crew. First up, we have Maddie K. From Rainy Edinburgh, Scotland.
2: And a big shout out to Corey from Orlando, Florida.
1: Next up, a big garage thank you to Diane in San Francisco. And big, we like your jib to Scott in Northville, Michigan. Here's a shout-out to Cal driving the big rig all the way over in Queensland, Australia. And last but not least, one of our many, many Canadian brothers in the True Crime Garage Army, a toast to matthew up in ontario
2: cheers to ya matthew
1: and you can donate to the beer fund by going to our website truecrimegarage.com while you're there check out the store page lots of beautiful some of the most beautiful shirts you've ever seen you could fill your whole closet with true crime garage Mm -hmm. wear and make your friends jealous as hell (laughs) yeah
2: super jealous
1: yeah let them know that you studied computer in college by wearing the computer tech i mastered
2: computer all All right right, that's enough of the business
1: everybody gather around grab a chair grab a whole bunch of beers let's talk (laughs) some true crime In yesterday's show, we started off by telling you the tragic story of four people who were gunned down in the Superbike Motorsports store in Chesney, South Carolina, in 2003. That case remains unsolved. Then we tell you about the strange disappearance of a couple in their early 30s. This is 32-year-old Charles Carver and his girlfriend, 30-year-old Kayla Brown.
2: And the Superbike case became one of the most popular cases And all of South Carolina,
1: one of the most famous cold cases of South Carolina. That's correct. This case involving the disappearance of these two young people. Well, it started to pick up some steam in the media when strange postings were taking place on their Facebook pages. These were almost postings pointing out that they're living some kind of secret life that they had not disappeared at all, that they are. They went off on their own and they're fine. Right. Police decide that they're going to use technology to try to track down these two people, and they start tracing Kayla Brown's cell phone. Well, they find that her phone was pinging off of towers up to two days after the couple was last seen in 2016. They trace these pings to towers that are located in Woodruff, South Carolina, 50 miles away. From where the two had lived.
2: Yeah. Now this is a small town and it has a small population.
1: Yeah. I believe that Woodruff is only like four square miles Mm -hmm. and the population would be somewhere between like four and 5,000 people. So, so a small blip on the map, right Mm -hmm. now they, the police still have an issue to deal with because now it's a matter of narrowing down a more specific location of where this cell phone could be located And then, too, getting a search warrant to go out and find the thing. Right. So Anderson investigators, they worked the case for over a month and a half before they were able to conclude that there was cell phone activity from Kayla's phone in that area. Now, once they confirmed this, they had to contact the Spartansburg Sheriff's Office and inform them that they had their case of a missing couple, and they believed that the answers may lie within Spartanburg's jurisdiction. Not only were the Anderson investigators armed with cell phone records, but they also had some information that had been provided to them from a third party. Okay. The information was that Kayla's body, they had heard a rumor that Kayla's body is buried on a 100-acre property somewhere near Woodruff. Mm. Now, the sheriff's department points out that there is only one property that matches that description within a two-mile radius of that cell phone tower. And that is a 94-acre property belonging to a man named Todd Colehep. So they got the police helicopter, right? And they did a flyover of Colehep's property. Okay. What they were looking for, what they were hoping to see, is if they could spot Charles Carver's white vehicle that had right. gone missing right. and had right. been missing for two months. After they did an extensive air search, it turned up nothing.
2: Yeah, they didn't find the vehicle. And also, this guy Todd, he doesn't actually live on the property. It's this property that he owns.
1: Yeah, it's a big hunk of land. And the police, they're not going to give up on this on this gut feeling that they have. They believe that the, the property is suspicious, and they want to get boots on the ground and comb the property.
2: Right, the better pro- than pants on the ground.
1: <laughs> the mm. problem with that, Captain, is they need to get a search warrant. Right. So they're going to have to have more than just suspicion to get that piece of paper that will allow them to search the property.
2: Well, this is going to be hard to do.
1: Well, investigators they went and they got Todd Colehep's cell phone records, and this provided them with a confirmation of what they already had suspected. This put Todd Colehep's phone, his cell phone, and Kayla Brown's cell phone in the same area at the time of her disappearance.
2: Which that's all they really needed to get the search warrant for his property.
1: Yeah, and the interesting thing here, Captain, this is a good tactic. You had mentioned that Todd did not live at that property. No, he he lived away and he lived in a like a regular neighborhood, you know, not not on a big piece of property somewhere. Right. And so what they did was they actually got two search warrants, one for his home where he lived, and then one for the large ninety four yeah. acre property that he owned. The thought is and they served them at the at the same time which is which is pretty brilliant I think because he can only be at one of those properties if he wants to monitor what's going on right he can only be in one location at a time so you're hoping that you get to walk a place without him interfering with any of your search
2: right and I'm picking the land
1: well you if you're Todd
2: no, I'm if, if I'm law enforcement, I'm, well, they, I'm picking, I don't want him at that land.
1: Well, then you got your wish because he decided to be at his home. Mm-hmm. My guess is what what is more likely is that he didn't have a choice in the matter. They probably just showed up.
2: Right. We have a search warrant. Yeah. Search in your house.
1: What I would do is watch his house and make sure that he's in the location that you want him to be. Right. Okay. So you have him at his house. And you also have investigators at his property. Both locations are being searched. So the detectives and the deputies that found themselves out on the big property, on the 94-acre piece of property, this is on Thursday, November 3rd, early in the morning, they're there to serve that warrant. They're out there walking this property. The investigators had searched a barn, finding a U-bolt chain.
2: Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. what's a u-bolt chain? well
1: uh, i i said that wrong they found a u-bolt and chains around a bed in a loft okay now
2: that's weird
1: yeah so and a it's going to get in a
2: loft and there's chains okay. yes
1: on these beds and it's going to get a little more weird because they start to hear some kind of banging noise or so they thought i mean keep in mind this is a huge piece of property pretty right. much unoccupied land so it's hard to tell but there are some
2: but there's multiple buildings
1: yeah the noise was they described it as faint at first and they actually thought that it could just be some noise coming from the woods okay so the deputies they moved out of the barn and they decided to listen a little more closely and they started hearing it again this banging noise and they decided to chase after the noise moving closer and closer to where they believed it was coming from yeah and as they moved on, it was getting louder and louder as they ran. And the noise took them to a 30-foot-long shipping container. Mm-hmm. One officer ran up to it and decided to knock on the side of this shipping container. That's when they heard screaming. Oh. Somebody was inside and they're yelling, help me, get me out of here.
2: Oh, my God.
1: So the investigators, they ultimately use Hepp's own tools that they find on the property and in the barn and such to cut open the container. Mm-hmm. The deputies took the padlock off of the doors of the container and opened it up. Inside they found the missing 30 year old woman, Kayla Brown. She she's alive, she, you know, but she's tethered by the neck. One investigator said she was chained like a dog in there. And she tells the officers immediately, I've been in here for about two months. Now, as Kayla emerged from the dark of that shipping container, so did Todd Colehep's secrets.
2: Right, but we have another missing person. We have mm-hmm. Charles, her her boyfriend.
1: Yeah, there's no sign of him. You know, they they find Kayla, but no sign of Charles Carver. Mm-hmm. Later, dozens and dozens of people searched the property. And ultimately they ended up finding his vehicle. It was found in a ravine. And the thing was it was covered in brush. Right. And it was also spray painted brown. So that's why they couldn't see this thing from the air when they did the flyover. Todd Kohlhepp, he was arrested. Um, you know, simply they just they just call over to the guys searching his house and say, Slap the cuffs on him, we found our missing person.
2: Yeah, they, they called over and they said, Use my friend are a piece of shit.
1: Yeah. And he decides he's not going to cooperate with investigators. He doesn't of tell course them. not. He didn't tell them anything. He doesn't know anything about the woman that they found on his property. <laughs> yeah. Chained up like a dog.
2: Don't know anything about her. Yeah. Never seen her. No,
1: never talked to her.
2: Yeah. But um, she has a different story.
1: Yes. Well, let's get into her story. And first the, the sheriff is on record describing the container as what he says is a hellish place to be locked up in. During the area's hot weather, he stated that there were no lights, there were no windows, there's no airflow right. through this little container thing. Now, Kayla was wearing clothes when she was found, but it's not clear whether they are the same ones that she was wearing when she and went, Charles right. Carver went missing. The sheriff said deputies found weapons on the property. Um, these are guns uh, and ammunition. On the land. In his house or um, it doesn't really matter, but I believe they found him in both locations. Right. And he described the sheriff described the property as a farm that has no one, uh, no home on it. Right. Okay. So now you mentioned Kayla. Now when she is, she's receiving some medical attention, she's going to be put into an ambulance where she's going to go off to receive treatment mm-hmm. and During this time, she has an opportunity to speak with investigators who want to know how did this happen and what happened after, you know, since you've been here. You say you've been here for two months. So Kayla informs them that she was introduced to Todd Colehep about five or six years ago by some guy that she was dating at the time. Uh, They said that they were friends. Uh, I'm sorry. She said that they were friends, her and Todd. Right. She had stayed in touch with Todd Coleheep from Facebook and that she had started working for him, started cleaning houses for him. Remember, Colhep is a realtor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you take over a home, especially if it's not occupied, not everybody leaves the home in good selling condition. You bring in somebody some some cleaners to clean up the properties, whether it be outside or inside. Right. Now she stated that her and her boyfriend Charlie went to Cole Hepp's property in Woodruff to thin some underbrush. This was on the day that they went missing. Right. She said that the three of them had walked into the barn to get some tools for this underbrush clearing. Now, she states that they got some hedge clippers and they walked back outside. That's when Todd went back inside and shouted for them to hold on for a second. When Todd came back out, he had a gun in his hand. He fired three shots into Charlie's chest. Charlie fell backwards and Kayla was completely in shock. She said that she looked down at him and that's when Todd grabbed her from behind and he took her inside and put her on the floor. He had handcuffed her, uh, handcuffing her hands behind her back and then cuffed her feet. Then he sat down in a chair and told her that he was sorry about killing Charlie. But he had to let her know that he was serious, and he wouldn't hurt her. Okay. He wouldn't hurt her if she did what he said. Mm -hmm. He said to her that he couldn't believe that she didn't realize that he liked to kill people.
2: Uh, Okay. Yeah. Well, you you sell houses, man. You're not killing people.
1: Well, that's, that's, you
2: know what I mean? Like that, how does that make any sense? Well, he tells her,
1: how did you not know that I like killing people? Well, he tells her that he, he actually killed people for the government for a living and that she should have known better. And he said that he was breaking all of his rules with her and he didn't know if he was going to kill her or to sell her. Now, when he, when he took her inside. I'm sorry, when he took her outside, she saw Charlie. Charlie was, he was dead at this point. Mm -hmm. And he was wrapped up in a blue tarp and in the bucket of Todd's tractor. She said that he then put her in a building and left her there. He had told her that he buried Charlie somewhere on his property and that no one would ever find him because he put red pepper around Charlie's body. And that wouldn't let the dogs smell the body.
2: Well, he must know this because he's killing people for the government.
1: Well, we mentioned the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Remember Charlie's vehicle? Not only did he spray paint it brown and cover it with brush so that people couldn't see it if they flew over top. He also loaded it or told her that he loaded it with dog food so that animals would come in and tear the thing up. Mm -hmm. Not leaving any evidence behind that was in the vehicle. Right. So he also told her that he sold people to sex trade in other countries and that he used to kill people for the government, stating that he was a military contractor, and that when he got home, he just couldn't keep from seeing the bad in everyone. And he said that he liked killing drug dealers. Okay. So Cole Hep he asked her.
2: But he killed Charlie for no reason, really.
1: Yeah, well, and he asked her for the passwords to get into hers and to Charlie's phones and to their Facebook accounts. Right. She said that Todd Kohlhepp liked to brag to her that he was a serial killer and a mass murderer. He said that he was going to kill more people because he had dreams of his body count being in the three digits. Mm -hmm. He said that at that time, he was still in the high two digits. He also said that um, if she was going to be a good girl, that he would teach her how to kill people, and she could eventually be his partner. All right. So Kayla described the treatment that some she received. Some lofty goals to have. Some lofty <laughs> goals yeah. to have. Well, uh, from a very strange yeah. individual.
2: Hey, if, if you work hard enough, if you're a good girl, you can be a piece of shit just like me.
1: Well, she would describe the treatment that she received at the hands of this monster. She said that while she was there, he, Todd, would get to the property between one and three o'clock every day, and he would take her out to the main building. Right. And this is where he would feed her, and he would make her do whatever he wanted sexually. Mm -hmm. And then he would put her back in the building. She said then he would always come back between five and 7 p.m. and take her back out into the building. Again, usually feeding her. And again, most of the time doing whatever he wanted to her. He would let her take a bath. Um, She said that she had a chain around her neck that was connected to a wall and a cuff around her ankle. Now, she said that he would come and get her out of there. He would come in with a gun and he would then walk her to the other building at gunpoint. He told her Todd. Cole told Brown that he would never see jail time for any of this, because if he was caught, he would either buy his way out Mm -hmm. or his handlers would get him out of this situation. Right. He also said that if he was ever caught, that he would say that, that Kayla had shot Charlie, that she had seduced Todd. Mm. And he said that he had money, you know, lots of money. And that because of this, the police would believe him and they would not believe her. Well, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
2: She seduced me and then she chained herself up and put herself in this storage container.
1: She did say that he never, like if she would say no to something that she said, he said that she had to do right. That he would never force himself on her. Cause
2: he didn't believe in rape. Right, that's what he said.
1: That's what he told her. Yeah. Right,
2: which this the gig- whole thing's rape. Right, this gigantic piece of shit should understand. You, you, you ch- you're chaining her into a storage cab uh, um, container, and it's super hot out, right? Mm-hmm. And you're taking her in to this house or other building by gunpoint. It's it's all rape, man. You you're just big. Ah, I just hate this guy.
1: Well, the other thing, though, too, even though he says that he, you know, wouldn't force himself on her. He made it very clear to her that if she was no longer useful to him, then he had no reason to keep her around any longer. And he's already told her that he killed her boyfriend. So she she knows what knows that what he's capable of. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And she did tell police, though, that as far as she knew that Todd had not killed anybody since Charlie. Now, Cole told her, told Kayla that he was going to build a house on that property at some point. And when he did, the two of them could be in a relationship together. She also, she stated that he was going to build some kind of soundproof room in the house and that's where she would be kept. Right. And if, if he trusted, Eo, if he grew to trust her, that at some point she would be able to get out of the house and, and walk and run the property. That sounds like every girl's dream. Well, I guess he was, he had explained um, Stockholm syndrome to her and he said, he was telling her, you know, eventually this Stockholm syndrome is going to kick in for you. And when it does, you and I can be happy together.
2: Mm. It's it's a strange.
1: He also tell this is a tactic that you hear a lot when you find these cases. He also told her that she was not being looked for, that nobody cared that she was missing. Right. You know, they, they use this tactic often. Now, Todd Colehep told Kayla that there were just a few mentions of her on Facebook about her disappearance and that the news only mentioned it once. And this was, uh, when her disappearance hit right around the one month mark, she said that she knew people were looking for, she, she never gave up on hope of that. And she also said that, unfortunately she realized it was a lot easier if Todd thought things were going to go his way. So she just made him think whatever he wanted to think. Right. And Kayla states that Cole Hepp, uh revealed that he had kept another woman in this container before her. He told her that he had just held her, that he, he was going to keep her there. And then at some point that girl had pissed him off and he decided to kill her. She stated that she wanted to escape and that she looked for opportunities to escape from him. But she said, you know, I kept my eyes open for a chance, but one never presented itself.
2: Right. And there's probably a chance at some point to try to take off running or something. Uh, But chances are he's going to shoot you.
1: Well, let's find out exactly who this creep Todd Kohlhepp is right after this beer break. While your subscription is active, all right, cheers, me mateys. Cheers, Captain. Now, Todd Colhep, he was actually born under a different name. He was born Todd Christopher Samsell. This Mm -hmm. is way back in March 7th of 1971. He was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Todd's father, William Samsell was a military veteran divorced from his mother in 1973, just after four years of marriage when Colehep was only two years old. Right now his mother, Regina remarried shortly after this. And at age five, Todd took the last name Colhep, which was his stepfather's last name. Carl Colehep Carl was his stepfather. Right. He had adopted him into the family. Along with two step siblings. Now in preschool, Cole Hep would sit in the corner and he could only interact with the other children in an angry manner, according to his mother. She also said that he would destroy other children's projects and he would hit the other children. One time he had bleached a goldfish. What? Yeah, I guess I guess he wanted some kind of other pet, like a hamster or something like that. Uh-huh. And when his parents told him no you have a goldfish we're not getting you the another pet right he killed the goldfish
2: yeah he's like well now i don't have a goldfish so i need a dog
1: well it's funny that you mentioned dogs because he actually one other thing that his mother pointed out was that at one time in his early childhood he actually shot a dog with a bb gun and he had been kicked out of the boy scouts for multiple disruptions. They didn't go into any details about that, but, uh, right. Who given what we've seen, who knows what that could mean. Now, while living in Georgia, Cole Hep spent three and a half months in a mental hospital as an inpatient. Uh, he was committed because he couldn't get along with other children. According to his mother throughout his childhood, Cole Hep expressed anger toward his stepfather. And at age 12 in 1982, with his mother and stepfather, uh, they were having marital problems, right. so Todd was sent to go live with his biological father for the summer. Now, Hep barely knew his father at this point. Remember, mm-hmm. they separated when he was very young, and his father moved quite far away. He hadn't seen his father in eight years by the time that he went to go live with him. His mother would later say that she believes that a lot of her son's problems might be because he never really knew his father.
2: Yeah, could be acting out because of that.
1: Well, after that summer, you know, he only goes and lives with his father for a summer. After that one summer, Todd then returns to South Carolina, and he's going to live with his mother. At this point, Todd is demanding that he be sent back to Arizona to live with his father. Okay. He's... Threatening to kill himself or his mother if she does not allow him to go back. Okay. Eventually Todd does go back and live with his biological father. And at some point he starts working for his father as a dishwasher and a busboy. His father owned a restaurant. This is Billy's famous for ribs. So in October of nineteen eighty-six, and this is according to police records, Todd Colehep, he lured his neighbor. This this girl lived three homes away from his house. Yeah. He Okay, so he goes up to their house, knocks on the door. This girl that he apparently was targeting answers the door. He tells her, hey, you need to come outside. Your boyfriend wants to talk to you. Once she gets outside, he pulls a gun on her. And he decides to take her for a walk at gunpoint. He then forced her to his home, which was Like we said, three three doors down, Uh and he rapes this girl, and he takes her. He walks her home, and he actually tells her, you know, if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. However, someone else ended up calling the police, not this girl, but somebody else in her family. Now, the police they arrived at Todd Coleheb's home, Mm -hmm. and when they found him there, they found him with a rifle. He's armed. And his first response to when they tell him why they are there mm-hmm. is how much time am I going to get for this weird? Yeah. Eventually they end up talking him down. You know, they, he, he puts away the gun right. and he ends up going with police. Now the thing is they end up charging him as an adult. Right.
2: So Todd's going to end up serving about 15 years in jail.
1: Yeah. And upon his release, he's now 30 years of age at this time. Mm -hmm. And when he's released, he moves back to South Carolina. He is then placed on the government's sex offender registry. Cole applied for a South Carolina real estate license. This took place in 2006. And in doing so, you know, he has to sit down and he has to tell them about his felony conviction. Right. For this kidnapping and rape. He in the application, um, which at the time it didn't require a criminal background check, I guess, but he wrote he wrote like a completely different story of this whole incident. Right. And he stated that he had some kind of heated argument that the girl the girl was actually his girlfriend, is what he says. And that they had some kind of heated argument and they decided to go for a walk and talk it out. And it was during this walk that she was reported as missing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when the police find them that he has a firearm, well, why does he have a gun with him? It's because of fear of and concern over gangs in the area at the time. Right. So he gives them this, this story and they approve his license to become a real estate agent in the state of South Carolina. He would eventually work as a broker for a Spartanburg, Real estate company while he ended up starting up his own real estate business. This is called TKA Real Estate. Mm-hmm. And this company employed about a dozen real estate agents. So he was doing pretty well. He was pretty successful.
2: Yeah, he was doing well enough to have one house. And then he purchased that land that the girl was found on in 2014 for over
1: $300,000. And not only did he purchase that land, Captain, I guess he built like a chain link fence on the property. Right. And it costs $80,000 to put the fence up on the property.
2: That was expensive fence.
1: Now, Kayla Brown had mentioned that the two were friends and that she was working for Todd at the time that he had taken her captive.
2: They were friends for roughly about five years.
1: Mm -hmm. And so the police would eventually release some of the interactions between the two that led up to the point of her disappearance. Mm Mm-hmm. One is where she is asking Cole if he has any work for her, stating, I know that you want to help, and I know you have work for me. Please let me know as soon as you can. Then later, Todd replied, we will figure it out. I would like to see you out of this hole that you are temporarily in. Mm -hmm. To which Kayla replies, are me and Charlie still working at the land on Wednesday? Todd Colehep had hired her, as we said, and hired Carver to clear some brush from his property. Now, on August 31st, the day that the two had disappeared, Kayla asks him, are we still meeting you at your house at noon? And Todd replies, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on September 7th, Todd Colehep sent another message. This message is to Kayla and says, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I saw this news article that you, that they are looking for you really hoping this is just you taking off for a few days at the beach or something, right? This is just him covering his tracks. And then on his own Facebook page, this is after the kidnapping. He makes a post that says reading the news, this person missing that person missing. Oh wait, that person just went to the beach with their friend. So again, covering his tracks and also acting like he knows nothing of anything, right? So we have this guy now he's, he's arrested and we have Kayla who's telling them the complete story. He abducted me and he killed my boyfriend. He shot Charlie in the chest. Now police are talking to this guy and they want to know the details because they have some of the information. They have it from the victim, but she has also told him, told the investigators that he has killed other people. Right. So Todd, he's going to shift gears here and he's going to start agreeing to cooperate with the investigators, but he's got a list of his own demands. Okay. He wanted them to help him do a few things. And if they did, he was willing to cooperate and tell them about his other crimes.
2: Okay. What what was this list?
1: Okay, so he had, as we said, he, he did pretty well for himself, so he had a good amount of money. I guess, believe it or not, uh, he referred to a woman as his girlfriend. So, according to him, he had a girlfriend at the time when this happened.
2: Oh, my
1: God. And his girlfriend had a daughter, I believe. And he wanted to take some of his money and transfer it into an account so that she could use it for her daughter. Okay. The police agree to to do this. Right. They also, the other thing that he wanted to do was he wanted to talk to his mother before he was willing to talk to the police. Okay. He wanted a one-on-one conversation with her, no police around, that kind of thing.
2: That's, that's not out of the realm of possibilities.
1: They agree to that as well. And then I guess there was a, a painting or a picture of a horse that was important to their family. I think it belonged to Todd's mother's mother. And it was in his home. His
2: and, mother was a mother.
1: Yeah. And he wanted the police to guarantee that they would give that picture, or that painting to her.
2: Okay. Again, something that's not unreasonable.
1: Not unreasonable, but you also have to wonder, you know, these guys are like, this guy's a monster and I don't want to do anything, anything for this guy. Why should we do anything for him? Well,
2: the- you you first wonder if he's going to give this money to his quote unquote girlfriend. And she's going to help him out somehow with Mm -hmm. it. But the talking to the mother thing, not that big of a deal. And this painting thing, not that big of a deal. If this, if you suspect that what his hostage was, you know, telling you is the truth, Mm -hmm. then the, then this monster has some stories to, to share and let's do a couple things to get these because then we can close some other cases.
1: Well, the first thing that he does now, remember, we have that story from Kayla Brown that's saying, you know, he told me that he kept another woman in this container before me. Right. And that somehow she pissed him off and he killed her. Yes. So the first thing that Todd does and what he will agree to is he does take them to two graves on his property. This is in addition to Charlie Carver. By this time, when speaking with him, they've recovered his Charlie's body. Right.
2: So he's going to be charged for that murder.
1: Correct. So he takes them to two graves. And this is Megan Lee McGraw Coxy, 25 and her husband, Johnny Joe Coxy, who was 29. Now the County coroner, he said that Megan was shot in the head and that Johnny was shot in the torso. The couple, the story of this couple they were reported missing late December 2015. This was shortly after each of them had been released from jail. Johnny had been arrested on December 10th and charged with unauthorized solicitation and giving false information to the police. Megan had been arrested on December 18th and charged with child neglect, according to court records. The two of them, they had a history of panhandling. Now SLED records S SLE, L. ED records show they had prior convictions for drug and alcohol offenses dating all the way back to 2009. Okay. Now, Megan's mother was the one that reported the two of them missing. She reported her missing on December 22nd after she couldn't reach her on multiple attempts. Now, Hep would tell us that he first saw Megan panhandling on Reedville Road one day and he felt bad for her. So he stopped and he talked to her and then he offered the couple a job cleaning houses for his real estate agency. Right. And the couple had gone to his property, his big property in Woodruff to get cleaning supplies. This is when Todd says that Johnny decided to pull a knife out and he tried to rob Todd. He said that he came at me and then I put two in his chest So then the investigators, they want to know, well, what, what about Megan? Why is she dead and found on your property as well? And he said that he didn't want to kill her immediately. He said that he was, he was kind of panicked. You know, he shot this guy and he didn't really know what to do with the girl now with the woman. Right. So he said that he cuffed Megan and he left her on the floor of one of his buildings while he buried her husband's body. Then he cleared the room in his metal shipping container. This is the same one that they would later find Kayla Brown in. Mm-hmm. He said that during the time that he kept her, he kept her for about five or six days, kept Megan there. He had brought her things, uh, little Caesar's pizza, Dr. Peppers, uh, a lighter Newport cigarettes, And he was trying to tell her that he would take her, he would drive her to Tennessee and he would give her like four or $5,000 so she could start her life over again. She could get a job and she could just disappear up there. Well, I don't know where that plan went awry or maybe she wasn't agreeing to that, but he said at some point that Megan kept burning things inside the container. And that he had found the storage container full of smoke. And because she had been burning things, you know, she was doing things that were pissing him off. She was not agreeing. She was not playing along with whatever she was supposed to be doing. She was breaking things, setting things on fire. And so. Trying to get
2: rescued. Well. That's what she was doing.
1: Yeah. And he said that he kind of played a trick on her. He said that he was going to let her go. And he walked her out of the container. And after they got out of that storage container, he put a bullet in the back of her head.
2: Right.
1: He says that he ended up using the same Glock 22 to kill Johnny and Charles.
2: Yeah, but what Todd's doing here is he's confessing in a way. But I don't think he's telling the actual truth of what happened.
1: Yeah, confessing in a way that points out that it might not be 100% his fault that these people are dead. That right. they They did things to him. That, that ended in the result of them dying or being
2: killed. Because, hey, you take two panhandlers and you go on your property. That gives you a reason to be carrying a gun. And the guy pulls a knife at you and charges at you and you shoot him dead. Okay. Well, if that was the case and it was in self-defense, you call the police. But you didn't do that. You chained somebody up into a, a storage container.
1: Well, and there's also some proof that he may have known Uh, one or both of these victims before he saw them panhandling on the side of the road Mm -hmm. because later a, uh, some people that worked at a waffle house in the area, they came forward and they were like, you know, Megan used to work here at this waffle house. Right. And we knew Todd Colgate and what he was known for was he was a regular that would come into the waffle house and he would harass the, the waitresses. He would creep them out yeah and it it got to the point where the you know how there's always like they always have the female waitresses working you know serving the tables taking mm-hmm. the orders and the waffle house typically will have a guy standing there cooking you know he's the the cook right and that's kind of the way they've always done things. Well, because Todd creeped out these waitresses so much, The cook, when Todd would come in, he would stop cooking and he would go over and interact with Todd and he would take the orders. Right, right. So the waitresses didn't even have to talk to this guy.
2: Well, good for the cooks, you know. Good job, creepo.
1: Well, so now he's confessed to three murders, right? Right. Well, at some point, his mother, Todd's mother, tells the police and investigators that they might want to ask Todd about the super bike murders. Yeah, the
2: most popular case in state's history.
1: Well, and, we, you know, we said that that Todd had his demands for the police, that he was only going to talk to them if they agreed to certain things. And I'm sure a lot of people get angry when they hear that investigators agreed to to, anything, to those. Right, right. But the thing is, is at that time, they had already spoken to his mother. They already had suspicions that he might be responsible for the Superbike murders. Okay. They told him, we will agree to these if you talk to us about Superbike. They, Todd says, no, I, I will talk to you about that, but not until after I get to do A, B, and C. Okay, That's why they agreed to that. <clears throat> but right. they did not agree right. to it until the, he gave them a little something more.
2: Right, right, right.
1: They say, you need to tell us something that only the killer would actually know. What did he say? He described the two types of ammo that were used in the killing. He actually described the weight and the grain of the bullets that were used. Really? And it wasn't until later that he would tell them the full story. But the full story goes like this. Todd Cole told the investigators that he had actually bought a motorcycle from Superbike in April of 2003. 14 days later, the bike would be stolen from his apartment. He filed a police report with the local police there just days before the theft. Cole stated that he had actually gone back to the super bike store and asked if he could return the bike because he couldn't ride it. Mm -hmm. Cole states that when he was there, that the workers laughed at him.
2: Yeah. Then he's going to state to police that he thinks it's odd that he went back to try to get, to return the bike. Mm-hmm. And then a couple days later, the bike is stolen. Mm-hmm. So now he believes that the store stole the bike.
1: Yeah. They stole the bike and they laughed at him because he couldn't ride it. Colhab said that he, for the next few months, he returned to the store several times. And during these visits, he would test out different bikes. He said he was looking for a beginner bike, something that he thought he could handle. Nobody had ever trained him or taught him how to ride a motorcycle. Right. But on November 3rd, 2003, hep drove to the Chesney store after he had some classes at uh, Greenville Tech, where he went to school. Mm-hmm. During this visit, he pretended to be a customer. He was really wasting a lot of time looking at different bikes, one in particular, a black Katana 600. Now, we know that Kelly Sisk would see that exchange between Todd Colehep. And the super uh, superbike owner, Scott Ponder. Mm-hmm. Sisk left with his th- four year old son, and this is when Todd Kohlhepp began his plan. He told them that he wanted to purchase the bike, and so the katana bike traveled to the back of the shop to be prepped to leave the store. During this time, Todd went to the back of the shop as well, and this is where he shot Chris Sherbert twice. Mm hmm. Once determining that the man was dead, he pushed through the bifold doors with his knuckles, like with his fist, so he wouldn't be leaving any fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Todd then encountered Beverly Guy, and he said this was a non-intended target. He didn't even know that she was there at the store, but he then, then shot her, and he would end up shooting Brian, Lucas, and Scott Ponder as they were running out the front door. He said at that point, then he went up and he fired a kill shot in each of their heads. He also told the investigators that no prints were found on the shell casings in the shop because he wore two pairs of gloves when loading his firearms, even when he was practicing. Some other things that Todd Kohlhepp told the investigators during his interviews he stated that he was not a terrorist, that he would never do anything against the interest of the United States, stating that he loved his country. He told the police that he would never kill an officer, he would never kill children or the elderly. Colhep said that he didn't think this is this is weird. Right. So he didn't think that Caleb Brown deserved to receive the twenty five thousand dollar superbike murder case reward. That he in fact Deserved to receive the money because he was the one that confessed to it and told them how it went down. Right. So yeah, that's what
2: they do. They give the money to the person that killed the people. That's what they do. Todd.
1: They also figured out that Cole Hep actually received a letter from the police. They when they were still working the super bike murder case, Kohep received a letter from them in 2013 because he was listed in a customer log because he did buy that bike in April, right. you know, many months before this thing went down. So he never really outwardly states a motive for the quadruple homicide, but it's clear he was very angry with them. Right. And we also see this pattern of anger and anger towards other people dating back to his very early childhood days where he can't handle anger, he can't handle people. And when he thought that they stole his bike from him and that they were laughing at him and making fun of him, he decided the best way to handle this is to drive in there and shoot every person in the store that worked there.
2: Yeah. and, I, and The sad thing, though, is it might not have been that premeditated. It could have been as simple as, hey, you know what? I'm I've, I've taking a couple lessons now. I think I could ride a bike. Let me have this bike. They take the bike. They put it on, you know, the lift to work on it. Mm-hmm. And he, he's back there. And uh, he's talking about how well, I had a bike before and it was stolen. And the guy's like, oh, you're the guy that couldn't ride the bike. Right. You know, and it could have just been one little offhanded remark that just made him snap.
1: I think the thing that, that led his mother to believe that he might be responsible for the super bike murders and to talk to police about it. Mm-hmm. She states that, you know, after she figured out that her son was capable of killing people, after they found that woman on his property, that she recalled that 13 years ago when this thing had went down, Todd was especially nervous. He seemed off and he seemed weird. And he even made the comment to her a couple of times that he's, I'm never even going to drive by that store again. Right. Well, obviously he doesn't want to be seen because he does match the description that was given by that last customer that was in the store, I want to do a couple of follow-up things here on this case before we shut down for the day, Captain. There's there's some interesting things that are still going on with Todd's case to this day. Now he would ultimately end up pleading guilty to seven counts of murder and one count of kidnapping. He is currently serving a seven uh, seven life sentences in a state prison in South Carolina, plus additional time for the kidnapping. He's never going to get out. And he pled guilty to this just to save his own butt so he wouldn't get the death penalty. Right. Now there are some people there, the victims families are a little upset with the current situation. They believe that uh, Todd is either receiving special treatment, maybe specials, not the right word, but they're receiving he's receiving treatment that they don't agree with apparently todd has wrote some letters and made some drawings and things that have worked their way to the outside and then have been sold on his behalf i don't know if the money ended up going to todd but rightfully so the victims families are very upset with this right you know he should not have the opportunity to make any money at all while he's behind pr- you know prison walls And furthermore, they are upset that he's not currently in the general population of this prison, that he's being held. uh, Most of these guys get some type of solitary confinement where where they're by themselves, in a cell by themselves for most of the day, every day. And one would argue that that, in a a way, is a form of increased punishment. Yeah, But I think that what the family is saying is, look, we would prefer that he's out in gen pop and whatever, whatever those guys want to do with him, let it be
2: right. Because a lot of times you take like a pedophile or something, they get theirs in prison, but also sometimes, you know, he's a uh, Todd is a murderer, but he's also a rapist. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes guys on the inside hear about that and they, um, car, you know, karma becomes a bitch.
1: Well, and he also, I think Todd kind of fancies himself a bit of a celebrity amongst the other prisoners, which might play itself out in a bad way for Todd. Right. So we have, let's move from general population inside the prison to general public outside the prison system. There's a lot of people in the general public that are kind of upset about this case because Todd has continually told investigators that he's guilty of more murders. But he states that they're not willing to talk to me about it. I keep telling them that I've killed more people. They don't seem to care. They don't want any details. So we have people in our general public that are kind of saying, well, why wouldn't they be interested? Why don't they want to work these cases? Is it just because he's locked up for good that they don't care anymore? Right. But we also have Todd on record lying about
2: other things. So is it possible he's just lying about this?
1: My guess is that you are absolutely right, Captain, that, he they're they've probably checked up on his whereabouts mm-hmm. and they're probably not finding any cases that match his cases that, that his known victims. Mm-hmm. I bet you they've done quite a bit of work on this. We know that they looked at him for that bank robbery, for the for the killings at the bank. They've never confirmed who actually pulled that off. Yeah. But they did look at him for that. I think here's where I think we should direct our attention rather than this claim that there's all these other victims and that the police don't want to work the case. This is where my anger lies and it kind of lies within the system itself. And because of horrible, the horrible tragedy that took place in Florida, not too long ago, the big talk right now that everybody's talking about is gun laws, gun control. Should we have guns? Should we not have guns? Should we have this? Should we not have that? Right what the problem I have here is with this specific case and where it comes down to gun laws and gun rules and how we should conduct ourselves. We have a guy that committed a violent crime, even though he was a child, he was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. He committed a violent gun related crime where he raped another girl. He raped a girl that was under the age of 18. Mm hmm. He was convicted of this. He was a felon. Right. Using he, a gun. He goes to another state and ultimately somehow illegally acquires other firearms that he uses to kill to kill these victims. Right. What I want what where I want the investigation to continue is I think We have rules for a reason. We have laws for a reason. There is no reason why a man like Todd Kohlhepp should ever have a gun. And I think when you sell illegally, sell guns to people, there should be something that happens retroactively. If they end up finding, tracing that gun to a crime where the gun exchanged hands illegally,
2: they do have those laws.
1: They do have them do. How often do we hear somebody being convicted of such? Right. Let's find these people that he purchased these guns from, and let's punish them.
2: Or you go back to the idea that you know, you know what we. It, it's sad to me that somebody could take somebody by gunpoint and rape them and only get fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Like, give them thirty years. You know, give give them forty years. You know, I, I don't know. I think that's, I agree with you on the gun law thing, but I think also, uh, people should get more time for these heinous crimes.
1: I agree 100%, but I, but I also think that before we start, before we start discussing other things with guns, we need to start agreeing that we are going to hold people to the laws that we've currently created. We can't create more laws and uphold them if we're not upholding the the ones that we currently have. Right. It would be a good starting point, in my opinion.
2: I do think it's very possible that at some point later in the future that they're going to hold him responsible for another crime, um, just because I mean you have again a mass shooting, mm-hmm. and then you have two other cases that are very similar, with you know basically killing the boyfriend and then kidnapping the girlfriend, uh, but there could just be a singular person out there. Um, you know, like he said, he'd like to kill. Uh, drug dealers and stuff like that mm. there, there might be another case later that they able to charge this guy with alright thanks for listening thanks for telling a friend thanks for checking out the website buying the t-shirts feeling fommy
1: feeling fommy alright everybody out there be good be kind and don't let it